Thank you, Carl. And again, it's great to be, uh, be with you. Um, I uh, do want to continue this theme of, of two-handed theology using uh, the four gospel paradoxes that uh, Benjamin Morgan Palmer sets forth uh, in this book. I'll, I'll talk about that here in a moment. Uh, but first, a little bit about uh, Ben Palmer. I guess he was known, probably, uh, BMP. Uh, he was the pastor, as Carlos said, of First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans uh, from 1856 to 1902. So being from Baton Rouge, uh, born and raised, uh, when I first was uh, brought into the knowledge of uh, Southern Presbyterianism, to realize that, wow, here is this man, uh, you know, an hour down the road uh, from where I grew up, uh, who was a pastor for so long at one church. It was, it was very uh, instrumental in my own uh, preparation for ministry. Palmer was born in 1818 uh, to Edward Palmer, Sarah Bunce Palmer. Uh, Edward, his father, pastored the Circular Church in Charleston. Uh, but while young Benjamin was growing up, uh, they lived in Dorchester, Walterboro, and McPhersonville, Fiersonville. And, uh, and so he studied at Amherst College, the University of, of Georgia, and then he attended Columbia Seminary from 1839 to 1841. There he sat under the preaching of James Henley Thornhill, Thornhill uh, who was about uh, six years older than he was. Uh, he was an intern in Anderson, South Carolina, not too far from here. And then he pastored First President Savannah from the age of 23 to 25. Uh, then he followed Dr. Thornwell at First Columbia from 1843 to 1855. So when he was from age 25 to 37, he was the pastor there in Columbia. Uh, he served for one year as the professor of church history and polity at Columbia Theological Seminary, and then he was called down to New Orleans in 1856 uh, at the age of 38, and he stayed there until he was hit by a streetcar and died in 1902 at the age of, of 84. There used to be uh, a Palmer Park, uh, which is right where the streetcar had hit him, uh, but that uh, is no longer named after Palmer, uh, as you can imagine, for all uh, his support of uh, the South, the Civil War, uh, he was removed from uh, the name of that park recently. So in 1870, uh, in the Southwestern Presbyterian newspaper, Palmer wrote a series of articles entitled Christian Paradoxes. Uh, and this is a book from Carl's Library, uh, The Selected Writings of Benjamin Morgan Palmer, articles written for the Southwestern Presbyterian in the years 1869 uh, to 70. Uh, this book, um, I guess I started Log College Press uh, this book sort of launched it in a sense because when I was a pastor in Columbia, Mississippi, uh, I, I realized that there were these articles sort of hidden away uh, in this, this newspaper, the Southwestern Presbyterian, and I was able to, to get those from uh, uh, North Carolina, blanking out on the, uh, Montreat, North Carolina, uh, and, and get microfilm of them. I would go to the library and you know, type away uh, transcribing those articles and I couldn't get anyone to publish them until Nick Wilburn said, well, I know some people at Banner. Uh, and so he uh, was able to, to get this published. And so he has articles on missions, on pastoral ministry, uh, on uh, the Beatitudes, um, on Christian experience in general. Uh, but these four articles uh, on, on Christian paradoxes were, were striking to me back at the time. Uh, and particularly as I've continued to read a lot of Southern Presbyterian uh, writings um, and my own study of scripture, uh, these same themes that I was just talking about in our sermon, uh, they, they appear here in Palmer's uh, book, in his writing. Uh, let me give you a definition of a paradox in the words of Palmer. He says, a paradox is not as many suppose a statement contrary to fact, 
but only an assertion contrary to appearance. It is often the most precise and energetic form in which a truth can be put, requiring both accuracy of thought and a measured use of language for its due expression. It is simply bringing together two or more statements which, though in seeming hostility, have a real but hidden ground of reconciliation. The contradiction in language, he says, serves as a note of alarm, which rouses the sluggish mind to note the truth concealed beneath. And so I want us to to look at these four uh, Christian paradoxes, these four paradoxes of the Christian life, of the Christian experience. Uh, But I do encourage you to find this book online and uh, or borrow it from Carl if he lets you borrow his books, uh, and, uh, and, and, and read Palmer for yourself. I'm going to quote from him liberally here, uh, but I do encourage you to, uh, to, to check out his own writing. Very short articles, because again, they were written sort of as editorials you know, for a newspaper uh, back in 1870. So the first one he gives is the humility and the dignity of the believer in Jesus. And what he's talking about is this. As Christians... We have at the same time an exceedingly low view of ourselves and an exceptionally high view of ourselves. What does he mean? Well, we know ourselves in this present moment to be full of sin and corruption. Paul writes, experimental religion is founded upon a thorough understanding, a thorough conviction of sin and guilt. So with Isaiah, right, when we are confronted with the holiness of God, we continually cry out, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. And and so we know by the law of God, by our own conscience, uh, that we are sinners. And this this knowledge of our sin is not something that's just at the beginning of of the Christian life. And, And you see this, don't you, in Paul's own Writings. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Later on in Ephesians chapter 3, later on chronologically, right in his writing, he calls himself the least of all the saints. But then toward the end of his life, 1, Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, what does he call himself? The chief of sinners. So here's Paul, the man of God who is increasing in his knowledge of his own sinfulness, of his own lowliness as he advances in the Christian life. Uh, Paul could say in Romans 7, I know that there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. Right? Every day of our brief existence, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we acknowledge, we confess our sin, that we confess that we incur spiritual debt against the Lord that needs to be pardoned, that needs to be forgiven. And yet, here's the point that Palmer's making our knowledge of our sinfulness, our, our conviction of our, of our utter depravity uh, out, apart from the grace of God, right? Uh, and even as believers, our ongoing depravity, the indwelling nature of sin in our life, uh, it doesn't lead us to being overwhelmed in shame and utter despair. For in the same hour that we possess this deep humiliation, we are filled, Palmer says, with the loftiest exaltation. For we know that in Jesus Christ, our sin and our guilt are forgiven. We know that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We know that we've been justified and adopted by the very God of holiness and justice that would condemn us to hell outside of Jesus Christ. So Palmer writes, just as clear as may be our conviction of sin, just so distinct is our conscious appropriation of an offered righteousness. If in ourselves we are condemned... 
in Christ we are justified. And so both humility and dignity, this sense of unworthiness in ourselves, but absolute worthiness in Jesus Christ, marks the believer in Jesus. Perhaps you've heard or sung uh, the Getty song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And they, they capture it beautifully, don't they? When they say, Two wonders here I, that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And that's what Palmer is saying. We are able to honestly and humbly acknowledge our sinfulness. Right? We, we have this humility, we have this lowliness in our own heart and life. Uh, but we can do that precisely because we know that because of Jesus we have been accepted by God. Now, to the world, Palmer says, this makes no sense. Listen to how he writes it. The whole thing to the unbeliever is an enigma. For upon his view of the case, such humiliation, if it is really felt, must draw after it the loss of all self-respect. And in the estimation of the world, this self-respect is the basis of integrity. Without this self-respect, the most rapid and complete demoralization is bound to ensue. But that's the paradox, Palmer says. The noblest specimens of human character are to be found amongst men who profess the deepest sense of their personal unworthiness and boldly avow it in the presence of all creatures. So do you sense this about yourself? Do you know yourself to be, outside of Christ, the chief of sinners, filled with humility at your sin, but at the same time, You have this exaltation of spirit. You have this knowledge of the gospel in Jesus Christ, right? Personal unworthiness, but full of worth in Jesus Christ. Palmer would say this is a Christian paradox that every believer uh, needs to experience. Uh, The first paradox leads then naturally to the second. Reverent awe and confident boldness in our approach to God. Uh, Like perhaps many of you, the first uh, book that I read uh, by R.C. Sproul was the book the holiness of God. But my first exposure to Sproul, uh, funny enough, was actually on uh, a, a, an album recorded by Wes King uh, in his album, The Road. And I'll never forget hearing R.C. Sproul read Isaiah 6. His gravelly voice, right? I can't imitate it. Uh, But to hear him read in the reverence with which he read Isaiah 6, it was incredibly awe-inducing. And then to read the book, The Holiness of God, and to hear Sproul teach on it more and more, uh, but the reverent manner even in which he read the scriptures opened my eyes and my heart to the message that was at the core of of his ministry with Ligonier Ministries, the holiness of God. And so we know, don't we, that sinful creatures must always draw near to a thrice holy God full of reverent awe. Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that God is a consuming fire and that we must draw near with this reverent awe that flows forth with gratitude also because he has shown grace to us as sinners. And so all true worship begins with what Jeremiah says in chapter 10. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. Right, so, so in the believer, there must be this reverent awe at the holiness of God. And yet at the, the moment of deepest right, self-abasement, as Palmer puts it, before the divine majesty, 
At the very moment that we are crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, with the tax collector. It's at that moment that we also make our nearest approach to the majesty of God. Why? Because Jesus there in Luke 18 says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. We know as we draw near to God and his holiness that we are also drawing near to a father who has accepted us in the beloved. In Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 3, we have boldness, confident access through him to the Father. We can call God Abba Father because of Jesus Christ. So Palmer, uh, in his writings, would uh, point to Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10, uh, where the author of the Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, since he is our sympathetic high priest who has been tempted every way as we are yet without sin, Therefore, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Knowing that that God is holy, and yet knowing that we have a mediator, we have one who can bring us into his presence uh, blameless and faultless, without fear. We can come confidently to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or, again, Hebrews chapter 10, Palmer points to this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, he writes, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And so the believer has, again, this sort of paradoxical experience in himself, says Palmer, where we can, in all honestly, draw fearlessly to God, pouring out the depths of our sorrows, pouring out all of our weakness, all of our sin, Uh, even the evil of our secret sins that no one else sees. We can confide in our Heavenly Father, all that we are, right? Because we know that our majestic King, the Holy One of Israel, takes account of all of our wanderings, Psalm 56 says. He grants us strength and weakness, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, He casts all of our sins behind his back, Isaiah 38 puts it. The Holy One of Israel, high and holy and exalted, condescends to dwell with sinners like us through Jesus Christ, through the cross of Christ, we have the confidence, right? The, 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 this, this boldness that, that's coupled with this reverent awe of God. We know that we are forgiven. We know that his righteousness covers us, right? We know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a hymn that's never been... Uh, really put to music, unfortunately. I've tried a couple of times myself, uh, but just, it just hasn't stuck. The, the tune I've come up with just isn't that great. Let's just be honest. Um, but the words are amazing. It's by Augustus Toplady. And here are two of the verses. It says, If thou my pardon hast secured, and freely in my room endured, the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First from my bleeding surety's hand, And then again from mine. God does not demand payment from us if he's demanded it from his son. And then the the last verse of the hymn goes like this. Return my soul unto thy rest. The sorrows of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood. Nor fear thy banishment from God. Since Jesus died for thee. Beautiful words that, that again drive us boldly and confidently to the throne of grace. But all of that boldness must always be marked by a reverent awe. How does does Psalm 2 put it? Rejoice with trembling. 
And again, as we think in this sort of two-handed way, right, we can never draw near to God without both joy and reverent fear, right? Without uh, a delight in who God is to us in Jesus Christ, but at the same time, right, always a sober recognition that he is the creator, he is the king of kings, uh, he is God above all, uh, and so we must come with a reverent fear. And so in the Christian life, in the Christian experience, uh, it's a paradox, right, how both of these things can, can dwell together, reverent awe and confident boldness, and yet Palmer says uh, that is so true. He, he writes this, wonderful mystery of divine grace, that from this undertone of awe, which subdues and controls the heart, the believer should be able to speak out before Yahweh, or Jehovah, as he would say, everything that is in him. Yet why should he not, Palmer writes? Has not God, with the antecedent knowledge of it all, still loved him with an everlasting love? Have not these sins been cast into the bottom of the sea that they may be remembered against him no more forever? Has not the conscience been sprinkled with the blood of sacrifice? Is he not clothed in the fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteousness of saints? Who shall lay anything to his charge? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is ever at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Palmer there quoting from Romans 8. Palmer goes on, Nothing is needed but that we should be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance, in order to extinguish all sense of fear and shame with a loving confidence, which has no parallel in any of the associations of life. We lay bare every thought before our Father in heaven. And this is interesting. He says, and when words fail to embody our feeling, we just think silently in the hearing of him who is quick to catch even the ticking of the heart. So Palmer is saying, the Christian experience is one of reverent awe and boldness of confidence, confident boldness in access to God through Christ. So those are the first two. Uh, paradoxes that Palmer would uh, point us to. Uh, humility and dignity, reverent awe and confident boldness. The third one is this, a keen sensibility to the sorrows of life with a self-controlled composure of soul. A keen sensibility to the sorrows of life with a self-controlled composure of soul. Since the fall of Adam, right, God's response to our sin has been judgment. And, and, and where there is sin, there is misery, right? Misery and grief have been inescapable. Uh, we even heard it, didn't we, uh, in the prayer uh, this morning uh, that Job says man is born uh, to uh, trouble as sparks fly upward, right? A beautiful image that, uh, that Job gives us there. Uh, Palmer puts it like this. He says, the young infant commences its career with a cry of distress. It's a premonition of all that it must suffer between the cradle and the grave. And the moan that we are accustomed to hear, this is the 19th century, we aren't accustomed as much in the chamber of sickness and death to hear it, but the moan that we are accustomed to hear in the chamber of sickness show how hard it is to die. Of the countless myriads who have crossed the stage of life, there is not one upon whom the days of darkness do not come and whose soul is not pierced at length by the sharp point of sorrow. And nor does regeneration alter this state of affairs, does it? Paul, in, in Acts 14, verse 22, one of my favorite verses as a pastor, says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the path to glory, only through suffering. Again, following in the footsteps of our Savior. Palmer 
understood sorrow. If you've ever seen his, uh, his book, The Broken Home, Lessons in Sorrow, uh, you know, I mentioned last night about how Smythe uh, and his wife lost uh, you know, infants, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and an 11-month-old. Um, Palmer uh, lost even more, right? Older children, uh, he writes about losing his mother, his wife, uh, infants. Um, you know, I want to be careful here, right? Because on the one hand, I know that even, you know, in a room this big, people have lost child to miscarriage. They lost children, uh, maybe stillborns. They've lost children even, you know, in infancy. And so I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to negate at all the suffering that we've experienced. But when you read the 19th century, you're like, man, they were losing children all the time. Every family, right, had a death in the family, it seems, you know, of a, of a child. Um, and, 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 and so you read these men they knew the sorrow of life. I mean, again, you think, they didn't have air conditioning, right? So many things that we take for granted, they suffered right, in ways that, that, that we just will never know, will never experience because of the modern conveniences and comforts of life. Uh, and so here is the suffering that is part and parcel of just being a human, says Palmer. But the world responds in one of two ways, he says, either in stoic fashion, sort of the stiff upper lip, or he writes in Bacchanalian fashion, Mardi Gras, right, uh, being from Louisiana. It's either we're going to, you know, just grin and bear it, or we're going to say, you know, the heck with this, we're going to live how we want, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. Right? And Palmer says those are the two ways the world responds to it. You either sort of deny sorrow by stuffing it down in this insensible heart of stone, uh, or you just drown sorrow in the sensual pleasures of this life. But Christians says Palmer, right? because we follow the example of the man of sorrows who knew pain and grief intimately. Right? The saints of old, again, even, even the 19th century saints of old, we know we can't walk either one of those two paths. Right? Those are the two extremes. Those are the two ditches as we think about suffering. Right? We grieve deeply. We refuse to fall into the ditch of, of stoicism. Right? Rather, we grieve deeply we feed upon our tears day and night, says David in Psalm 42. We are sensible to sorrow. We have a keen sensibility to sorrow, as Palmer puts it. Because we realize that, that sorrow and suffering is to be expected as God's testimony against sin. It's not to be denied or run away from or, or try to, to, to you know, free our life from all sorrow. Because we know that our Savior walked this path. He trod this path of suffering and like him, we too, as the book of Hebrews says, we too learn obedience from the things that we suffer. And so as Palmer puts it, a feeling of indifference to the trials of earth, so far from being a state of life to be cultivated, would be an attitude of rebellion against God, he says. It would be a bold resistance to the very methods by which grace seeks to subdue more thoroughly the Christian's will and to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So the necessary influence of true religion, he writes, is therefore to refine the heart, to quicken the sensibilities, and thus to render more keenly alive the heart to the sorrows of earth. I wonder if you, when you suffer, when you're filled with sorrow, are you tempted perhaps to say, I shouldn't be suffering, I shouldn't be weeping, I shouldn't be affected in this way? Sometimes that's sort of the message that even the Christian church can communicate, right? And yet the Bible, Palmer would say, we need to weep. We need to feel 
the sorrow that we go through deeply. And yet, on the other hand, on the other hand, Palmer says, in our grief, there is a deep and lasting hope. Again, we know this, 1 Thessalonians 4, we grieve not as the world, right, who has no hope. With Job, we are able to say with confidence, not just man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, but also, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, Job 13, 15. With Habakkuk, as our legs quiver and our, our lips tremble, we can say at the end of Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, what? Yet I will rejoice and exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. We don't merely passively endure suffering as Christians. Rather, Romans 5, we rejoice, we exult as Habakkuk and Paul put it, in our suffering. We glory in it. And so at the same time that we have this keen sensibility to the sorrows of life, says Palmer, we also have a self-controlled composure of soul. We are able to face sorrow in the composed knowledge that our tears are caught in the bottle of God. Psalm 56, again, such a beautiful text that God records our tears in his book. We know that everything we suffer and endure, everything we go through that is hard in this life is from the hands of a gracious and a loving Heavenly Father. It's not a cruel and impersonal fate that determines our lot in life, Palmer says, but a friend who rules in majesty. And so we are certain that in the present, our sovereign king, as Palmer writes, has ever a gracious and sweet end in view, the anticipation of which, even by faith, reconciles us to all the methods by which it shall be accomplished. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And we also know that this world is not our final resting place. One day, Revelation tells us, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so we can walk in this world not only with this feeling sense of sorrow, as well as a fellow feeling sense of those who are going through trials, weeping with those who weep, comforting those who are going through sorrow with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. But we also have this buoyancy that sustains us through the storm. We can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And so Palmer concludes this point with these, this beautiful imagery. He says, as in the ocean there is a calm beneath the surface in its serene depths below, which the rude storms are unable to disturb, so beneath the waves and billows of human sorrow, there is in Christ a peace sustained, inviolate, right? Incapable of being violated amid all the shocks to which our surface life is exposed. Do you feel this paradox in your own life, right? Have you seen uh, that, that as a believer, the more you have grown in Christ, right, you are able to weep deeply, and yet at the same time that you are weeping, to rejoice deeply. That's the Christian paradox. That's the the paradox of the Christian life, because God is sovereign. We live in a fallen world. This world is not our home, but we know that God is sovereign over it still, and so we can trust him, and in the midst of our tears, we can be buoyed up, sustained uh, by this this joy uh, and this composure of soul uh, that, that is only known by those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, 
The fourth paradox that Palmer points us to is the believer's deadness to the world united with the truest enjoyment of it. And this is curious. We know, don't we, the Bible is clear, that as Christians we're called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. Jesus says in Luke 14, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 9, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross daily. And Palmer reminds us that this death to self is, is not just a, a one-time act. It's also an ongoing act, right, as Christians. He writes this, just because uh, the world and, and the self was the idol of our previous worship, this sacrifice is demanded. And whatever may be the extent of actual renunciations afterwards claimed at Christ's hand, the believer must, in purpose and intention at least, at the beginning of the Christian life, lay it all down at the Savior's feet. Jesus has chosen us out of this world. We're no longer of this world, John 17 says. And the world gets this about Christianity, right? The world knows, in a sense, yeah, that's why we're not Christians, right? Because Christianity is a killjoy religion. Christianity uh, would call us uh, to lead only a life of austerity and gloom, as Palmer puts it. And so we don't have anything to do with this Jesus who would call us to to take up the cross and, and follow him. Um, And yet what the world can't understand and doesn't understand, writes Palmer, is that we who have died with Christ to this world are also able to enjoy this world in fullness, to enjoy this world in purity. Because again, John 17, Jesus did not pray that we would be taken out of the world, but rather he sends us into the world on mission that we might make disciples of all the nations. He prays that his Father would keep us from the evil one, while we are in this world, they're not of this world. Uh, and so we go forth in the world, yes, on the one hand, refusing to, to walk according to the course of this world, Ephesians 2, but we also go into this world delighting in the reality, 1 Timothy 6, that, that God has provided us everything richly to enjoy. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says that, that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so there is, again, in the Christian life, this paradox. Yes, we are dead to this world. Right? We are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow the Lord. And yet, we are able to appreciate and to enjoy right, the glory of God's creation. Um, again, go to the book of Ecclesiastes uh, and, and see all those wonderful uh, passages that, that call us right, to enjoy life with the woman we've loved all our days. Right? To, to, to take... Uh, great comfort and delight in the world that God has made, um, right? Because we believe that he is the one who made it, uh, and he is sovereign over it. And so Palmer writes it like this. He says, when the sacrifice has been sincerely made, the sovereign Lord puts it right back into the hands of his children with a free permission to use it wisely under the seal of his own blessing. The Christian is not called to be an anchorite, a monk, It's only required of him that he love not the world, nor the things of the world. The heart is given supremely to God. And when the test of this has been fairly made, a rational enjoyment of life is afforded as his his portion here and as the pledge of infinitely more hereafter. And so again, on the one hand, we want to reject the the extreme that says, hey, you know, we're we're called to to live a monkish life, to reject anything worldly. Right, in the sense of just even enjoying the world. Right? 
But on the other hand, we do want to say, yeah, we're also called to reject worldliness, right, of loving this world. We are called as Christians to live in this paradoxical experience, right, of, of, of tasting and seeing how good God is even in created things, right, and knowing that we are in the world but not of the world, but we are called to be in the world, to enjoy this, this world by God's grace. And we enjoy it best, says Palmer, when we are most forgetful of it. He says, this is how we renounce it and enjoy it at the same time, when we know this world to be vanity, to be fleeting, and we don't seek our satisfaction in it, that's when we'll enjoy it properly. And Paul says as much, doesn't he, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, He says, we use this world as though we did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. And so when we enjoy this world, not for our own selfish sake and our own indulgence, but for the good of others, then we use it rightly. Palmer, again, he says, He who lives for God in duty, who fills up the brief space of fourscore years with deeds of honest service to his fellow men, who pitches his hope beyond the horizon of earth, he lives to purpose, on purpose, we might say. And the world becomes to him the beautiful temple of his worship. So here are these four, uh, we might say these four two-handed truths, these four paradoxes, and and we want to cling to both of them, all right, as as two-handed Christians. We want to say, yes, we have a humility and a dignity about ourselves. Yes, we have this reverent awe in the presence of God and a confident boldness in the presence of God. We have a keen sensibility to the sorrows of life. Right? We don't tell one another, hey, stop it, stop crying, no big deal. Right? On the other hand, we say we have this composure of soul and joy because we know that God is sovereign. And finally, we're dead to this world, and yet we also enjoy it. How can these things be true apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel? And so my, my prayer, uh, again, using the language of Ecclesiastes 7.18 from the New American Standard, it's good that you grasp one, one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. And so as we look this morning, as we look now in Sunday school and then tonight, we'll see three more uh, two-handed truths uh, my prayer is that the Lord would enable us, right, to walk this middle road uh, and enable us uh, to, to hold on tightly to both sides of these truths uh, so that we might walk faithfully with him. Can I close this in prayer? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Benjamin Morgan Palmer, for his life and his ministry, uh, for his faithfulness as a pastor, uh, not only here in South Carolina, but in New Orleans, Louisiana, for so many years. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, giving us this chance to learn from him, to sit at his feet and to to hear the things that he would have us to hear, to, uh, to, to think on these paradoxes of the Christian life. Lord, would you help us uh, in our uh, Christian journeys to uh, reflect upon the ways that we uh, fall off the cliff, as it were, in, in regard to one side or the other of these four pairs. Lord, would you help us uh, to walk uh, in, in harmony and balance, uh, that we would find uh, the middle ground of these, of these different uh, couplets, that we might walk in trust in faith in Jesus Christ, uh, Father, in, in every way, uh, following you according to your word as it has revealed uh, the life of the, the believer to be. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to be together this morning. We ask your blessing upon us the rest of this Lord's Day. Uh, help us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, and Lord, to rejoice in your goodness and grace to us and bring us back.